So this is the first day of spring, the spring equinox, 21st of March. And yesterday I went into London. I have to get these injections in my left eye for macular degeneration. And it's always a rather pleasure for me to go from Amravati to London at springtime when the trees, from the barren trees to the budding trees to the flowering trees to the fully splendid trees in their foliage. And then when it starts falling, because here in the UK, the seasons are very noticeable, very observable. So in the changing seasons that we can witness just as an object of our vision, You know, we reflect on the fact that all conditioned phenomena is impermanent and changing. So just an obvious fact of first day of spring, does this particular season announce itself? Does it call itself the first day of spring? Or do we call it that? So the equinox means the days and nights are about equal in length, and then as it moves through spring to summer, then the days become longer, and then the solstice, and on and on like that. So we have names for these events that we can witness to very well here in the Northern Hemisphere. So life is, very nature is about change, and this changingness is something that as Buddhists, as meditators, we're encouraged to observe, not to criticize or prefer one season over another and following our own personal reactions to winter, spring, summer, autumn, and so forth. We have personal reactions to these, but just the witnessing, the ability to be the witness to change. Is that a sankhara? Is that a phenomenon? You know, so I ask myself, is the ability to witness, to be just a neutral observer, the conscious witness, of the way it is, is that a sankhara or a condition or a phenomenon? So this is like inquiring, self-inquiry, self-investigation. Can phenomenon witness another phenomenon? So it's conscious awareness that witnesses phenomena changing because conscious awareness is not a phenomenon. It's a reality we all share.
So just by reflecting on this, and in the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha, they're very clear about this. It's a guided toward realizations, realizing this yourself, not a system of beliefs to become a Buddhist, become a Vipassana practitioner, become a Theravadan Buddhist. Or maybe you don't like to identify with a word, so you think you're just a spiritual seeker. These are all words that we can use for this experience of witnessing the way it is. So witnessing fear, for example, is one of the common emotions all human beings, all animals seem to have this fear reaction. Just observing, sitting in my room looking out at the garden, you see that how the squirrels romping about and the magpies are all aware, you know, of the danger of being eaten or killed or set upon by some other creature. So that's the world of nature, the natural, what we call natural way of life, of survival, is one species living off another species. Now, is that good or bad? Is our animals who eat other animals evil because, like whales, swallow whole schools of fish in one gulp, or sharks when they kill a human being? I mean, we can label that evil because in our human state we create these concepts of good and evil. And evil is something to fear. Good is something we feel safe with when people are good, moral, trustworthy, honest. Then we feel a sense of stability and we feel a sense of well-being, trust, we're not frightened. So we can be very idealistic and want your cat to not kill birds or mice because you want your cat to have the same standard of moral integrity as you have. And yet, it's not the nature of a cat to keep five moral precepts. Its nature is to live off other animals. Is that good or bad? Well, we can call it, if we're into making value judgments about animals, we can say that's bad. But we have, you know, in the five precepts, not to intentionally kill another human being. And that's a law in the country, like in European countries. Most countries, murder or intentionally killing another human being is crime, it's evil. And yet we still have capital punishment, so the state can kill. Or in wars, it's all right to go and kill the enemy. 
So where does morality take us? You know, where is it absolute or not? So we make value judgments about such events, such situations. And fear in this realm where it's the experience of surviving in a very vulnerable form. Like the human form is rather delicate. Even the toughest matter woman is quite delicate in his nature. And we have survival instincts that are part of the species that we identify with. Because we know that how easily we could be, you know, just yesterday in Victoria area of London, a woman was killed by an automobile that the man driving the car didn't know the difference between the brake and the accelerator. So suddenly this woman is crossing the street and suddenly wiped out just like that in the wink of an eye. There's no intention, but these kind of events are possible. Death at any moment, a meteor coming down and landing on top of your head or lightning. And then we can imagine. We have vivid imaginations like vampires, aliens from outer space, zombies, ghosts. These are imagined creatures, scary creatures, walking death creatures blood-sucking creatures, and these are images that, in their very nature, when you hear a vampire, you know, it's a scary word. But the witness of fear is that frightened. And when we realize our true nature is the witness, the knower of never gets frightened, where the conditioning of a human being, man or woman, is conditioned to be frightened, because identity with a mortal form is very frightening in its very nature, because it's about survival, about hunger and violence. You know, we have tend to get violent when we're frightened, when we're threatened, personally threatened. So fear is a realm that we're experiencing, but it is a condition arising and ceasing because you're not frightened all the time. So with the witnessing position, Puto, when such uh, emotions, states of mind such as fear arise, you say, I'm frightened. You immediately say, I have a lot of fear to deal with. I'm frightened. The unenlightened, unaware human being identifies with fear in a personal way. So that can become an obsession of mind because you're attached to that particular perception 
And you're easily manipulated through fear, like dictatorships and Gestapos and secret services and all kind of, you know, these QAnon conspiracy theories, uh, all kinds of frightening conspiracy ideas that affect us, our daily life. But is the witness, is Puto frightened by any of these? This is the question to ask yourself. Are you going to be the aware, the conscious awareness itself, or the frightened personality? Because fear is a sankar, it's a condition, it's not a permanent state. It arises according to other conditions, how we're conditioned. We all have our own personal conditioning around fear. So when I was a child, you know, and I asked my mother about ghosts, she said, there aren't any, that's just superstition. No such thing as a ghost. I don't believe in ghosts. But yet being brought up as a Christian, I was asked to believe that there is a devil, Satan, who is pretty scary, because that's part of the Christian conditioning process. God is good, Satan is bad. There's good and evil. If you're a good boy, then God will be happy. If you're a bad boy, you're sent to live with Satan in hell. That's rather scary. So, social conditioning kind of intimidating how we're conditioned to see the world, the universe that we're experiencing through these very vulnerable forms. And so fear is seen in a personal way because we're conditioned to do that, interpret the fear that we might feel at any given moment as some kind of personal quality, and that is the illusion we create by identifying with the body and with the states of mind. That identification is, you know, identifying with something that is very unstable and impermanent in its very nature. So just like the changing of the seasons, wanting the seasons to, wanting summer to springtime in England to always be sunny, bright with green grass and beautiful flowers as an ideal we might prefer over cold, rainy winter. But consciousness doesn't prefer winter over spring or spring over winter. So the Buddha encouraged us to take our abiding place in awareness, mindfulness, conscious awareness here and now, because that's where we experience life. When you really investigate time, you really begin to break down the belief in a future and a past. Because experience is always here and now, whatever's happening. Whatever you're believing, clinging to, subjected to, 
as an individual person at the present moment is like this. And if we're attached to the conditioning of our minds and bodies, then we act accordingly. We can't help ourselves. We're conditioned to react to when somebody says there are ghosts haunting Namaravati, then we can react to that with, oh, there aren't any, that's superstition. But others might feel there are, and they start experiencing strange events. Are they making it up? Is it all just hocus-pocus or superstition? We can put it down. But if we believe that ghosts haunt Amravati, then, you know, it's not. You shouldn't believe that. That's what you've been conditioned to do. Your social, cultural, religious conditioning creates these images. So is there a devil, a satanic force, a dark force in the universe that we have to be frightened of and aware of? We can imagine such a thing as like the axis of evil, the forces of Satan, the predictions of destruction, doom, destruction, death, and decay. Are all morbid and frightening images. Are we doomed? What's going to happen to planet Earth in the future? So if our attachments, our blind condition attachments, that we, none of us asked for them, they were given to us when we were growing up, in the families and societies we grew up in, we experienced life by being conditioned, you know, we're programmed to react to fear of vampires and satanic forces, dark forces. So the fear is natural to arise when the conditions for that are present. But whatever happening is here and now, awareness, conscious awareness is here and now. It's the reality that we share that's not personal, it's not cultural, it's not religious conditioning. It's absolute reality, ultimate reality. It's Dhamma, here and now. When we're asked to be mindful, it's a suggestion to trust in this mindfulness, the ability to be aware here and now and be the witness to change. So that request, or that encouragement, is one of the great benefits of this birth as a human being, because we can do that. Where the animal kingdom has to live with that as a way of survival in the forms that they have, whether they be mammalian 
animal or insect or birds or whatever, uh, they are following the momentum of their forms. The karma conditioning of being born as a magpie is like this. They can only operate, they can't reflect on magpieness or the illusion of being a magpie. The form that we call a magpie is a conditioned form that's conscious and operating from the karma of being born in that particular category as a bird. Where we're born into the category of a human being, which we consider, you know, superior to the animal kingdom. We don't like to really consider ourselves animals. We're specially chosen. So what is special about being human? You know, if you become king of the world or the richest man or woman in the whole world, the most successful, that's still, you know, that's a great achievement in terms of modern Western values. To become all-powerful, have complete power over nature, all phenomena, like being a magician. But the humbling aspect of this form is that it gets old, gets sick, and dies. And so even uh, Gotama the Buddha got old, got sick, and died, just like all other human beings. So did the Buddha die when Gotama the Buddha passed away? When we talk about being Buddhists, or we use the Puto mantra, that refers to something that is deathless. Buddha as conscious awareness here and now. Santiti Kodama Kali Kodama. Timeless, apparent here and now. So everyone here has that ability of trusting this awareness and seeing through the conditioning process that you've personally experienced, whether it be a good, wholesome, fair and just conditioning or wrong or bad or stupid or whatever you might call it. And in this way, when we awaken to our true nature, what is there to fear? Except fear itself is something that arises and ceases. It's a phenomena dependent on other conditions being present. And so we can use that, not get rid of it and try to suppress it, but to understand it, because it is something that's part of the human karmic experience. So like species, 
is an interesting word to use because animals, insects, birds, amoebas are all conscious forms. Is a consciousness of an amoeba, you know, is it not as high as consciousness of a human being? So we can see like the killing of amoebas is okay. When we have infection in our body, should we take antibiotics? Because they kill germs. Is that breaking the first precept? Killing another sentient being with intention? You know, so we can get into being absolutely absurd about non-violence and non-killing. Because we see it from the perspective of personal endeavor, personal action. I'm the doer, I'm the killer of these germs. The question of abortion at this time, is that good or bad, right or wrong? You know, so there's all kinds of views about that. So views come, you know, we take stands with pro-life or women's rights to make her own decisions. We can take stands with that. And then when we do that, when we cling to that particular view, then we view the opposite, one who doesn't agree as wrong, evil, bad, unjust, stupid, or these kind of pejorative words can arise in our minds with people who agree that war is all right, or killing in a battle is necessary, or killing germs with antibiotics is just common sense, saving your own life. You can justify almost any stand you want to make through reason and logic. Through taking a stand with a principle, an ideal, and blindly clinging to it, and then trying to adjust, you know, your experience of life according to a particular view that you're very much attached to. But that's a form of slavery, bondage again. You have to protect the ideals, the heavenly forces, fight the evil forces. You have to become a warrior. And warriors are, in many cultures are glorified. You know, like even in, here in Britain or Europe or the United States, heroes, warrior heroes are great images that you're brought up with as a boy or girl. Superman or Wonder Woman or all these heroic forces for righteousness, right action, and who are destroying the evil forces is very exciting kind of imagination. But is there any purpose in life to become heroic as a person? We might be heroic in how we react to life. 
But is that liberation from delusion to being a hero? So these are like investigating our conditioning because heroes are admirable, they're strong, they're beautiful, they're good, righteous, and devils are ugly and mean and nasty, destructive forces in the universe. The very universe we live in is about birth and death, creation and destruction. So this is the realm that we're actually identifying with, the creation and destruction of phenomena that we bind ourselves to. And so there's a lot to fear, a lot to hope, to want to become heroic figure, become right all the time, to change the world so the rest of the world agrees with my righteous views, you know, can be a missionary's ideal, convert everybody to the way I, what I believe is right. That's my duty in life, that's my purpose, that's my meaning. It sounds very noble, and, and because it is a noble aspiration to want to convert everybody to right view, to moral precepts, to proper behavior, to trustworthy behavior, to being fair and just. We all subscribe to that. That would be very nice if everybody could be trustworthy, moral, and good. But we're living in a realm where those conditions are very impermanent. You know, you can't, uh, an ideal, you can create perfect ideal forms with your mind. Just imagine a perfect human being, like God, is perfect, he's compassionate, he loves everybody, he's fair. And so we create this image of a God, like a, usually, um, patriarchal form that's just and fair, compassionate, loving, and believing in that. It gives us a sense of purpose or meaning to our life to believe in what we imagine. And it can be very inspiring to many people to share your ideal image with others. So, uh, you know, the delusions that we create through our ideals, is it right or wrong? Or is it still something missing? Can I force every one of you to agree with me and obey me because I'm right? Can I judge every single monk and none here according to how I see myself. You know, we can do that, you know, how we regard each other as right or wrong, good or bad, lovable or not lovable. 
because we're programmed to do that. But when you take a stand with awareness, you realize those images, those perfect images of righteousness and goodness are just that. You can create them, but what is created is destroyed. They rise and cease. You can't hold on to that an ideal all the time. You, no single human being can be an ideal person. Because ideals are imagined. They're images of perfection. So what is perfect that we all share at this very moment is awareness, conscious awareness. And that's what we realize when we see through the illusions that we've been conditioned by. We begin to investigate are my ideals, no matter how high and righteous and good they might be, life is not an ideal experience. There's no ideal country, no ideal religion, no ideal tradition. Because all conditions, all phenomena are in this incessant changingness. The very nature of phenomena is change, is very unstable. Its very nature is unstable. And that's the way it is. So when we expect idealized stability as right, then we can easily become cynics and disappointed and disillusioned with life because, you know, when we're young it's easy to to be attached to ideals. But as we live life, we realize that I can't be an ideal person. Then what I imagine an ideal monk should be, an ideal bhikkhu, an ideal Theravada and Thai forest tradition bhikkhu should be. I can imagine, I can create an ideal monk, an ideal sumato. But in the reality of experiencing the karma of this form, you realize that none of it's ideal. And an ideal sumato is an image that one can create, but it changes. And when you awaken, to the nature of phenomena, then you're not expecting phenomena to be ideal. It can be an ideal image, but it also is impermanent and not self. So then the question is, who am I? Who are you? If I'm not this body, if I'm not these memories, these emotions, these thoughts, 
these conventions, if I'm not really, uh, you know, a permanent bhikkhu or permanent Buddhist, or I can't be an ideal Buddhist, You know, then you ask yourself, I ask myself, at this moment, what is unconditioned? What is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned here and now? As you investigate, you realize that through all the vicissitudes of change, of personality change, of body changes, of success and failure, praise and blame, that awareness, consciousness itself doesn't change. Sensory consciousness changes because the senses are very sensitive, changing conditions. With conscious awareness, mindfulness, Dhamma, when we take refuge in Dhamma, it is, doesn't change. And that's what you realize. Dhamma, here and now, apparent here and now, timeless. Which has no form, which you can't define. You can't objectify it. You can't describe it, but you know as you let go of what you're not, what you think, what you feel through the senses, what's left is conscious awareness here and now, timeless, santidiko akaliko, dhamma. So this is a reflection, is to use the situations you're experiencing with wisdom and awareness. So the it's springtime, first day of spring is like this. It's closing to the end of March where the winter retreat ends. The future, Many people tend to plan where they want to go after the winter's retreat. But being aware that the future is imagined in the here and now, it's present here and now. What, where you really are is always here and now, wherever your body happens to be. And I remember in my own experience of silence, just when the thinking process ceases and it's just silence. And I could see how the conditioning didn't know how to deal with silence. You're not conditioned to be silent. 
cultural conditioning, personality is all about being somebody, not about being silent. You know, we've got endless distractions available, and when the silence arises, we tend to run away from it, not appreciate it, because it's meaningless, doesn't have any purpose. You can't imagine silence. You can imagine it as some ideal state, but the reality of it, here and now, you're not programmed to appreciate that till you start recognizing, realizing that in the silence there's still conscious awareness, which is silent. It doesn't have language, doesn't create anything. Just peaceful, stable, silent background to the noise of our bodies, our senses, the world we live in, the way we are. So that's why I said, don't trust your personality or your views and opinions. Because you're not what you think or you're not what you believe. And if you're not what you think or believe, then what are you? A physical form? A, a, a very vulnerable physical form, male or female? Or are you something that is here and now, timeless, which you can realize for yourself? It's budget time. To be realized individually through wisdom. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon.